We've been on this study in the book of Psalms. I want you to go with me to Psalm 104, and I want to ask you a question. Uh, this question you didn't hear 40 years ago. Okay? And when I ask it, it there's no shaming or blaming implied. Okay? And I'm not even going to tell you what this I'm on. All right? Do you recycle? Okay, see, see, all of the recyclers are, are raising their hand. Have you noticed that? The recyclers are raising their hand. It's kind of an interesting thing. That's not a question that we asked 40 years ago. And uh, uh, interestingly, ecological awareness, that's a good thing, has become kind of the new morality, hasn't it? Um, we're urged not to judge people regarding just about everything, but this seems to be kind of the big exception. <laughs> That's why I don't want to tell you what side of this I'm on, okay? Um, we can fill the internet with filth, but filling our landfills when we should be recycling is deemed unacceptable, okay? So I find that interesting. I'll get off of that subject. Now, that word, recycle, is not found in the Bible. It's kind of a new word. Uh, it would be interesting to go back and look at it and see how old that word actually is. It may only be 40 years old. It's not a biblical word. The word in the Bible, and it's used a lot, is the word renew. Renew. And we know that there is a source of renewal in the Bible, um, and, and it's God. And he is, um, it, it, renewal is both part of his plan and um, uh, a process that's dependent on him alone whether it's renewal of the earth or renewal of a human spirit or whatever, it can't happen without his blessing and power. He is the God who is in the renewal business. I love it. I love it. Who caught me the other day? Roger, was it you? Somebody caught me to tell me that Brahms is coming right up. Was it you that talked to me about that? Somebody caught me a week ago to tell me Brahms was coming up at Hefner. Hefner and Rockwell, yeah. I thought it was you, but someday, I talked about it one day about the fact that they're not remodeling Brahms at Hefner and Rockwell. They leveled it, and there's something new taking its place. So, um, so somebody gave me an update on that last week. Now, here's the, here's the deal. God is in the renewal business. He's in the reclaiming business. And Psalm 104 is going to talk about his power to do some of those things. Now, this Psalm 104 falls um, kind of in the middle of what the Bible deems book four of the book of Psalms. And that's going to start in Psalm 90 and go to 106. Um, one scholar or two sees at least enough similarity between the Psalm we're going to study today in Psalms 8 and 33 um, and 145 to categorize those four as the songs of creation. That's interesting. That's not a biblical thing, but some, some scholars see it that way. Um, Psalm 104 is often paired with Psalm 103. Um, if you look at the beginning of them, okay, look at Psalm 104, verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. And you look at the beginning of Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul. So they kind of begin the same. They're both um, kind of songs of praise. And um, so you see a lot of that, and there's a lot of material from, drawn from the book of Genesis in both of those, so that kind of ties them together as well. Now, interestingly, if, if you read a higher critic 
a biblical critic, they're going to say, well, you know, that, uh, by the way, Psalm 103 is attributed to David, Psalm 104 is not attributed to anybody, but we think maybe it's a continuation of David's Psalm 103. So we, David may have written it, although we don't know for sure. Um, but, but interestingly here, if he did, uh, he had um, some, some um, higher critics will say he had a pagan source that he drew from. There is a lot of common material here uh, from um, uh, Pharaoh Akhenaten, um, from, um, uh, uh, he writes a hymn of praise to a fictitious sun god back in the 14th century BC. And it means that uh, there's some material there that may have been borrowed for Psalm 104, but they're really, really different in so many other ways. For instance, the conclusion, the focus of the tribute. And, and the fact that Psalm 104 is really dependent on the creation narrative from Genesis 1 assured the ancient Hebrew people as they were reading that, even if they were familiar with this old Egyptian uh, kind of praise hymn, uh, even if they knew that, when they read, they would realize, and not be confused at all, that there were two different compositions going on here. So, now, It may be that David or whoever borrowed from an ancient Egyptian writing. If so, maybe it's because his culture was already familiar with it. Maybe he was taking a jab at the Egyptians' conclusion that there was a sun god. Maybe so, who knows. But we know that this is an enduring passage that we ought to kind of come, become familiar with. So... Um, as we read it today, you're going to recognize lots of things, I think, in here from uh, some of our modern worship songs, some things that we sing in church. I'll talk about a couple of them. Now, Steve Blair, I think you've got our microphone. Would you read, please, the first four verses of Psalm 104? Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. Okay. Now, it, this hymn begins, this psalm begins with, I think, the psalmist telling himself to do something. What do you think? He's giving himself a command. What's the command? Praise the Lord. Or if in another translation, bless the Lord. Kind of same idea. Isn't it interesting that he feels it really important to instruct his own heart, his own soul. Now, and he uses the word praise here or blessing that word praise is used in the book of Psalms more than any other book in, in the Bible, certainly in the, New in the Old Testament here. Um, so it must be kind of important. Um, and I think this first verse here is, and by the way, the word praise is what goes in your first blank there. Praise is a great way to start any worship experience. But praise ought to be something that, that I teach myself or encourage myself or coach myself when I'm beginning 
to either worship God or start to pray. Anytime you're invoking God, begin with praise. If you're challenged in that area, a lot of people are, because we're just not used to it, then open this book, open the Hebrew hymn book, the book of Psalms, and talk to God about himself from there, and you'll learn how to praise God. So it's a really good way to begin is with words of praise. And he begins with some glorious words of praise here as it continues in verse two. Now, what is according to the writer of Psalm 104, he talks about God's clothing here in verse two. What's God clothed in? Light. What an interesting thought. That that the best word that he could come up with here to describe the splendor and the majesty of God is to say, you know what, the best that I can tell, you must be dressed in pure light. It's a pretty good thought there. Now, throughout history, people have picked up on these themes of God being uh, God's splendor and majesty. You see them here? Um, uh, at the end of verse one, and you're clothed with splendor and majesty. You clothed yourself with light as a cloak. You stretched out the heaven so like, with like a tent curtain. So the idea is that, that God, according to this person, uh, he lives under a tent of stars and he's wrapped in light. You recognize that phrase? He wraps himself in light. And darkness tries to hide. How great is our God? That's kind of a new song. Let me, let me, that one is borrowed from a really old song. Anybody here got Swedish background? That's okay. You're going to love this. All right. This song comes from back in, um, in uh, it's a 20th century song in English, but it comes really from back in 1886. A guy by the name of Carl Boberg, who was an evangelist, uh, a Swedish pastor, I wrote um, a, a song. The inspiration for that song ha- happened to be um, him looking in, in, a, in the beautiful country in the, on the southeast coast of Sweden. He was out in nature one day and he was caught in a, a severe thunderstorm uh, with all kinds of awe-inspiring moments of, of, of um, lightning and, and flashes. And then it would clear and there'd be a brilliant sun And uh, soon afterwards, it kind of got calm, and he heard the birds chirping in the trees. And he begins to write this song. Uh, It resulted in him just sitting down and writing a nine stanza poem that he called, called, and I'm not Swedish, so I don't know how exactly to say this, but O Storre Gut. And I could say the rest of it, but I can't. Okay. Now, so this, then that's just the beginning of this hymn text. It kind of lives for a while in the late 1800s in Sweden, and it's eventually translated into German in, uh, uh, later, um, in the, early in the, in the 20th century. And, uh, and then somebody picks it up, finds it in German, and translates it inst- into an English text, and where it com- becomes known, it's kind of, they take the old Swedish, and, and um, now it's German, and so they translate the German, and it becomes, at some point, you might find this in some books, it becomes Mighty God When I Behold the Wonder. That's 1927 or so. Starts occurring in some places like that. Well, 
but it's still not in the form that you and I got it. In fact, you and I would not be able to sing this hymn had Billy Graham got, not gone to London in 1951. Interesting, isn't it? This, is a, uh, this, this text would be um, as old as the 1880s, and um, Cliff Barrows and, and uh, George Beverly Shea encounter somebody singing this hymn in England and through this English text that was written by some English missionaries. Uh, they kind of took this, took this old Swedish hymn and they were inspired. Uh, they were doing some evangelistic work in the Ukraine and they had to transverse through Russia and they saw some of the beauty of Russia in the springtime. And they wrote three stanzas of the hymn that exists in our hymn book and that we sing occasionally. And they began to use it, and it had such effect on uh, the Ukrainian people coming to Christ that they wrote another one after, uh, actually after the, uh, the Second World War. It's the song to which you and I sing these words, those English words, that were translated now really from German, but changed quite a bit. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder Consider all the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. How great thou art. From Swedish to German, over generations, finally into English. One of the most popular hymns that is sung in this church or in any church. Talks about this majesty of God. I need to learn from people who do this kind of thing, don't I? Now, look at verse 3. There's an interesting concept here in verse 3. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the water. So there's some idea there that he's got something to do with uh, the formation of the seas. Uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But it goes on to say, he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon wings, on the wings of the wind. So the idea here is that God uses the wind like you and I use the ground. I referenced Isaiah 66, 15. That's the old passage from which we get the, uh, the thought of the chariots of fire. You remember that old movie? And uh, it's not all that old, but you remember that thought in that song. Uh, it's interesting that they kind of personify this. The idea here in verse 3 that's conveyed is that God is not like you and me. He's glorious beyond our understanding. Imagine. He walks on the wind. By the way, by the time he made it to uh, the Sea of Galilee, a thousand years after this was written, probably, Walking on the water was no big deal if he'd been used to walking on the wind, you know? I'm guessing. There's a majesty and, a, and an awesomeness beyond, beyond our human comprehension in so many ways. He's glorious beyond our understanding. Now, in verse 4, I'm going to have to do a little bit of word work with you here. Um, uh, there is... Um, 
Cindy, can you grab the mic there and go to Genesis 32.1? I want us to read that, and then we'll catch another couple of places. It, look at verse 4. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. Now, if you look at a note, if your Bible has notes in the margins, it's going to tell you that this could be written a different way. It could say, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers flames of fire. The word that is used for messengers here is the same word that's used elsewhere, like in Genesis 32.1, for the word uh, angels. So 32.1, okay. Genesis. This is NIV. Okay. Uh, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. That word angels is the same word that's used here in Psalm 104, 104 verse 4 as the word messengers. And it's... Now, and it's interesting that we get a pretty good understanding of it. If you want to go with me, go over to Hebrews 7. The book of Hebrews quotes uh, extensively from the 104th Psalm. They, um, the Hebrews writer really believes like this is, that this is a very important piece of literature. And so if you look at Hebrews 7, I'm sorry, Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1 verse 7. And of the angels, he says, so he, the New Testament writer kind of helps us understand it. He makes, who makes the angels, who makes his angels winds and his ministers of flame and fire? So that there's that idea here that he's talking about the angels that surround us. What I got to be careful of here. I got a dear friend in Nashville that um, uh, we used to sing together back in the day and he still sings and I don't, but, um, but he was always more talented than I was. But anytime he writes to me, he will sign off with, may angels guard your way. I like that thought. But the Bible never in any place asks me to bring praise to the angels. In fact, they are constantly in praise of the Father. Ministering spirits to us. And we're both to praise the Father. So I, I want to be, be clear about that distinction. But the, but the psalmist is talking here about the angels that are all around us. Now let's go to the next section. Cindy, I'm going to prevail you, on you again to read verse 24 and 25 and 6 out of Psalm 104 in just a minute. Now if we started out, we're saying God is great. Then Now we're going to shift to the idea that what he does is also great. Uh, Cindy, would you read 24 and 25 and 26? How many are your works, O Lord? In wisdom you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. There is the sea, vast and spacious, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things, both large and small. Okay, I want you to go to two or three places with me. Turn back to the eighth psalm. Now, the idea here is that creation itself, everything around us, is a testimony to the wisdom of God. Wisdom was involved in creation. Now, let's go to a few places and look at what it says, because it's going to personify wisdom in, in several places here. Uh, Psalm 8, verse, I'm going to start with verse 3. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? There's that kind of thought that God here has created it all in his wisdom. 
Now, go to 92, Psalm 92, verse 5, which is not too far back from where we've been parked today. 92, verse 5. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. Isn't it interesting that as the psalmist thinks about the work of God, he also thinks about God's intelligence, his thoughts, his wisdom, if you will. Now, let's go to one more, 111. So we're going to go a little past where we were this morning so far. 111, and we're going to read verse 10. You've heard this before, I think. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So there's this thought here that God is infinitely wise and this, this, we talked a little bit about the fear of God last week, but this combination of, of respect and reverence and fear of God um, uh, for knowing what he's doing in all of creation. I read a story years ago about a family of mice who lived in a piano, lived in a piano case, and um, a magnificent grand piano, then one day, one of the mice, a daring one, probably a young one, climbed up in another part of the piano, and soon they returned, very thoughtful and a little disturbed. They discovered how music was actually made. Wires were the secret. Uh, tightly stretched wires of graduated lengths and thicknesses, which throbbed and trembled and pulsated. Uh, they must revise all their old outdated beliefs. None but the most ignorant mouse would think that, uh, that there was a great unseen player. Well, later, another explorer mouse carried back the explanation even further. Hammers were the secret. Dozens of felt-covered hammers. They were dancing and leaping on the wires. This was a lot more complicated theory, but it all went to show that they, had a pure, they lived in a purely mechanistic mathematical world Let's hear no more about this mythical great unseen player. Any thinking mouse could see that there was nothing to the player myth. He didn't exist. Untroubled by their unbelief, the great artist, the unseen player, just kept on playing. Hollywood is full of mice. I better move on. Isn't it interesting that when we conjecture and we say, you know, no idiot believes there's a God. The great master continues to play on the keys and make the music of creation. And we're surrounded by it. How can you miss it? Years ago, I, uh, when I was here on staff, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, we were in a discipleship group together, um, who asked me if I would spend some time with her husband, who was an unbeliever. She was very worried about his soul and about, about his, um, uh, certainly about his eternal destiny, and, and really worried about um, their relationship as husband and wife. And, and she asked me to spend some time with him and see if I could just, uh, because he was such a kind of a, 
he was a kind of a militant unbeliever, you know? And he was kind of a scientist. And so we started talking about science a little bit. We talked about all kinds of unexplainable things that science tries to explain, and they don't quite get there. But what made the difference is one day after we'd had breakfast probably a dozen times, I began to ask him about his granddaughter. Now, what you need to do is put yourself in this place if you've got a baby anywhere in your life. And I gave him an assignment when we left breakfast that day. I said, I want you to go home and look at the hands and feet of your six-month-old granddaughter. Okay. So he comes back the next week, and I said, describe that for me. Tell me what you saw. Well, it's marvelous. I mean, there's there's fingernails, and, you know, I'm hanging out with, uh, when I can, online with Finn and uh, our our one-month-old now, and it's just interesting, the detail in a fingernail that's a month old. And little squirrely-looking feet that have really long toes. Anyway, okay, you don't want to hear about that. And his eyes. I said, as he described it, and he couldn't describe this grand, his first grandchild. You remember that deal, if you're, if you're a grandparent? He could not describe that little girl without smiling. And I said, okay, pal, tell me that what you looked at there is random protoplasm just kind of thrown together. Oh, no, I wouldn't dare tell you that. So who's in charge of all that? This is not an accident. You're not an accident. You're too intricate. You're too, let me borrow a a biblical word, you're too wonderful for that. Well, the Bible really helps us to understand here that creation itself is a testimony to the wisdom of God. Then he goes to the sea. He begins to think about the sea in verse 25. And he says, even to a person who's been on the sea a long time, the sea is vast. Even to a person who's out there all the time, when you get away from the shore and you can't see a shore on any one of your four horizons, the sea seems vast. Unending. And so I began to think about how deep does the sea need to be? In verse 26, he kind of answers that. Let's read it together. Verse 26 um, talks a little bit about sea creatures here. It's kind of interesting. And the ships move along, and Leviathan, which you formed, to sport in it. Uh, By the way, if you're reading from the NIV, I think it says to frolic in it. Now, we don't, I don't want to go to the Leviathan thing there. There have probably been great books written about who, who Leviathan was and what he was. Could have been a dragon, could have been, uh, you know, some big eel, who knows, and we don't really need to know. Could have been a dinosaur, okay? Um, don't know, don't know. But so let's put it in another place. Study or look up uh, the, the physical makeup of the great blue whale. All right? That's probably not talking about him there. But I, I did a little reading about the great blue whale this week. And the idea of the great blue whale, blue whales weigh, on average, 
200 tons. It's a lot of plankton. 200 tons, they typically about 98 feet long. And the Bible says that the seas are vast enough, God, you made them big enough so that that guy can play in it. Frolic, sport. What's that company that always has the whales jumping? Some insurance company or something? It's one of the, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Pacific, maybe it's Pacific Life, I don't know. But, you know, and they're just always boom, boom. The, the seas are vast enough that those guys, immense as they are, can play. The psalmist reaches this conclusion. God did that. He did that. Look down at verse 27. They all wait for you to give them their food in due season. The, the Bible's going to say here that every creature from fish to man are God's dependents. Verse 28. You give to them, they gather it up. You open your hand, they are satisfied with good. That is, by the way, a beautiful, beautiful verse. I wish we had more time to kind of mess with it here. But the idea is uh, that we all kind of uh, are dependent on him that Without him feeding us from his hand, it wouldn't happen. Now, the problem with you and me is that most of us purchase our food in a store, and there's bread everywhere. We're far removed from the basic elements of food production. We know that farming takes work, but we still ought to marvel that an empty field of dirt can fill with tall stalks of corn in a few weeks that feeds us. We ought to pause and wonder that nets can be dipped into a vast ocean and come up full of fish. We ought to never take our daily bread for granted. You remember Jesus told us to thank the Lord and to ask him for our daily bread in Luke 11. Even in our day, when daily bread is not so hard to come by, And he begins then to talk about God's hidden face. Well, I'll, I'll go on. Um, uh, the idea here is, is, is that God's face, his hidden face, uh, in verse 29, is an indicator of the instinctive fear of death. Let me read the last two verses here. You hide your face, they're dismayed. Animals are scared when they think they're gonna die. You take their spirit, they, they expire, return to dust. There's this idea of returning to dust. You send forth your spirit, they're created, and here it is, you renew the face of the ground. God's creatures continually renew the face of the ground. God is continually renewing life on the earth. Both animals and plants aren't just one generation in duration. And if you're a fan of uh, Disney movies, if you're a fan of The Lion King, we're not talking here about the circle of life. That is a very godless idea. We're talking about the cycle of life that he put in place. And I want to tell you this as we close. Every child who's taught well, by the way, knows about it. Every child knows about it. Because here's what they pray. You ready? God is great. God is good. 
Let us thank him for our food. Do you know there's a second stanza? By his hands we are fed. Thank you, Lord, for daily bread. If we teach that to our kids, how do we get so far from the thought of praising him for his daily watch care over me and mine? Uh, how do we get so far away from, is it just a childhood thought? Now, here's my question to you as I leave you. Uh, by the way, next week we'll be in 148. Do you see God in the everyday? It might take some discipline on your part, especially on a hard day, on a discouraging day, on a depressing day. Do you see or do you discipline yourself to see God in the everyday? Here's my absolute promise to you. I have no equivocation needed to this. If you will begin to look for God in your everyday, you will see him because he is there.